There's a moment in the book of Acts, Peter and John, uh, followers of the Lord Jesus, have caused this huge commotion. Uh, They've healed a man, uh, disabled from birth, and they've done so in the name of Jesus. And so that they're arrested and they're thrown into prison. And when they're told that they must stop preaching the good news, to cease telling others about Jesus, Peter says this, We must obey God rather than men. The passage goes on to say this, When they heard this, the the leaders, the the spiritual leaders of Israel at the time, uh, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honour by all people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Feudus rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men. Let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. Have you ever heard of Feudus? Have you ever heard of Judas the Galilean? I doubt you have unless you've read this part of the Bible before. Have you ever wondered how the Christian church grew from a small group of people in Roman-occupied Judea to a few hundred million scattered all over the world? What sets the Christian faith apart? How on earth did the first century church not only survive the, the strict persecution of the Romans, but outlast it by hundreds and hundreds of years? How did this mustard seed grow into the mighty tree? The passage that we have today goes some way to explaining it. In Matthew 28, we see Jesus giving the Great Commission. He gives his followers clear instructions as to what he wants them to do. And it can be summarized in one word. Go. And thankfully he elaborates. Uh, But the thrust of Jesus' call to his followers is to go out from Judea. To leave the, the relative security and comfort of their Jewish world and to tell others about who Jesus is, what he has done, what he is going to do. So as we look at these, uh, these verses, I want us to see four things. Uh, one, our foundation for gospel witness. Uh, two, our authority for gospel witness. Three, our call to gospel witness. And fourthly, our reassurance in gospel witness. When I say gospel witness, I mean telling people the wonderful news 
that we've received about Jesus. So let's pray uh, before we look at these four things. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you that we have good news. We pray that we would remember how good this news is and we pray that you would make us excited and uh, that we would fill us with your spirit so that we might go and tell others about how wonderful the Lord Jesus is. Amen. So firstly, I want us to look at our foundation for gospel witness. And we um, think of Jesus as, as a friend of the disciples. And in many ways, that is perfectly correct. He loved them dearly and, and they loved him dearly. And they did the things together that friends do. They shared meals together and they walked along the road together. And they shared time with one another's families. And they cared for one another. But you do not go to the lengths that the disciples went just for any friend. You see, we need to remember that he was also their Lord. He was their King. Now look at verse 17. When they saw him, they worshipped him. Now we see, as we begin to dive deeper into this passage, that Jesus was everything to them. We uh, join the action, um, but in uh, verse 16, but if you go back a bit, if you look at verses 9 and 10 of Matthew 28, uh, we read these words. Um, uh, it's speaking of the time when the, the women had come to mourn at the graveside of Jesus, uh, they came to put perfume and spices on the body, and uh, they find an empty tomb, and this is what it says in verses 9 and 10. And behold, Jesus met them and said... Greetings, and they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. What was Jesus going to say to the disciples? Uh, we often think about the last words people say before they die. Uh, did they say something significant? Did they say something important? But how about the first thing? That someone says after they have risen from the dead. Uh, Jesus wants to gather his disciples together to say something really important. So what could it be? And we know when Jesus takes you up a mountain, something special is going to happen. You're either going to hear an amazing sermon, as they heard on the sermon on the mount, or they may even see him as Peter, James, and John saw him. When they saw him transfigured, his uh, whole uh, appearance was dazzling and holy and beautiful. And the Bible is full of mountaintop experiences, moments of great clarity and communion between man and God. Uh, resolutions are made, challenges are laid down. The, the people who go up the mountain are rarely the same person once they come down. We think of Abraham being tested on Mount Moriah as he is told to sacrifice his only son, Isaac, uh, and shows great faith as he is provided with a ram. Uh, we think of Moses seeing some of God's glory and, and receiving the Ten Commandments and coming down with his face shining. We think of Elijah and the prophets of Baal, and Elijah calls down fire from heaven. And this is another one of these moments, another one of these uh, great mountaintop experiences. Because the disciples would never be the same after they heard 
these words from Jesus. And the reason why the disciples listened to Jesus was because uh, they worshipped him. It was not because they uh, were students to a certain school of, of thinking. No, he was their risen saviour. He had conquered death itself. He was the ruler over all. And as Peter had said during the Lord's ministry, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. They knew that in no one else could find forgiveness, joy and satisfaction. They simply had to tell others the good news. The eyewitness accounts in the Bible are full of honesty, aren't they? And there are glimpses in the gospel accounts that show us that we, we can't doubt the authenticity. Uh, there are details in it that prove that these were real people in a real time and place. And we're struck by those three words at the end of verse 17. But some doubted. But some doubted. This is not an intellectual doubt or a confusion. They knew who Jesus was and that he was standing there right in front of them. They weren't hallucinating. They weren't imagining things. But it speaks of the fear there was. The implications of what it would mean that Jesus was there in front of them. That someone had actually risen from the dead and was the Lord and Savior that he claimed he was. The word that is used for doubt is the same word used as when Peter was making his way across the water. And he was walking across as his master had done and began to sink as he lost sight of who he was with. And Jesus calls him out, doesn't he? He says, why did you doubt? And doubts are real, aren't they? We've all, I'm sure, had periods of doubt in our lives. A few weeks ago, I was in uh, the conference in, in Aberystwyth, and uh, I heard a man called Christopher Ash, a, a great Bible teacher, uh, speak about Christian doubt. It was a, a seminar with about 20, 25 of us there, and uh, it was so helpful. Uh, he was speaking about three main types of Christian doubt, and I just want to uh, share with them as a little sidebar in, in this sermon, because uh, doubts are, are real, aren't they? And uh, I just want to... Um, mention the three main types of Christian doubt he says there are. Uh, he says, uh, if we're struggling with whether the Bible is actually true, whether Jesus is actually uh, a, real, a real person who really died for us, then we need to look at the facts of Christ. The facts of Christ. The fact that Jesus lives up to historic scrutiny, that he fulfills hundreds of prophecies in the Bible, that there are eyewitness accounts of his life and death and resurrection. Maybe that's not your problem, but maybe you're struggling with the problem of how God could allow us to suffer. Maybe you've had real issues with your health, or uh, someone near to you is, is going through times of difficulty, or you've been let go in, in work or something like that. If that is the reason that is causing you to doubt, then you need to look at the promise of Christ. How even someone like Job who lost his, his family, his health and his, his wealth, he was able to say with confidence, I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand on the earth and after my skin has been destroyed, 
yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes and not another. How my heart yearns within me. So those are the doubts uh, that we deal with when we are suffering. But how about doubts when we are struggling with our sin and our failure? Then we need to look at the cross of Christ. Whether it's a mistake that you made a long time ago or mistakes that you keep on making today. We need to remember that uh, the blood of Jesus purifies us from all sin. Not some sin, not most sin, but all sin. So uh, I think I wanted to share those things with you because I thought they were a really helpful way of, 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 of categorizing different types of doubt and, and remedies for those different types of doubt. But uh, doubt is something that happens uh, to most, if not all, Christians. So take heart that the disciples struggled too. Uh, think of Thomas, poor Thomas, whose name is often prefixed with the word Doubting Thomas. But what I want to encourage you with this evening is to know that your doubts do not discount you from this great work that Jesus calls you out to do. On the mountaintop, as Jesus prepared to send out his disciples, he does not conduct a a vetting process and remove those with doubt and keep those with no doubts. It's not like when uh, God whittles down Gideon's army uh, and tells the ones who don't want to fight to go home. No, the reassurance that each one of them receives will come later on, even even for those who are doubting. The amazing thing is that with the Lord Jesus' presence through the Spirit, we know that every single one of these disciples, even those who doubted at this point, would complete the race They would run it to its completion. Each one of these disciples, each one of these 11 disciples, went faithfully into the mission field. And Thomas, uh, the one whose name is synonymous with doubt, is the one who Christian tradition tells us travelled the furthest afield, who went to share the good news of the gospel in India where he preached the truth until he was martyred. Eleven men were given this challenge by the Lord Jesus. Some would be killed, others tortured, some imprisoned. All of them suffered for Christ's name. Some ministered locally, some went further afield. All of them were faithful. What we must see is that the great commission, that the Lord Jesus giving this challenge, first and foremost begins with us believing in him. For any of us to witness to others about Jesus, to share with others how wonderful he is, then we need to worship him ourselves. We need to know him ourselves. There's no good us wanting to tell others about how wonderful church is, how wonderful what the sermon was like, how wonderful Jesus is, if we don't worship him ourselves. We need to know that he has always been, that he spoke creation into existence, that he submitted to the will of the Father and was born miraculously of a virgin, that he fulfilled the law by by living in perfect obedience, that he preached the truth, that he did good to those who came near to him, that he was the one that the promises of the Old Testament looked forward to, that his claims were effective, that his death was sufficient to take away the sins of the world, that his resurrection conquered death, 
and that he ascended to the right hand of God where he now rules. And each Sunday is a wonderful opportunity to worship him together, to remind us of who we serve, to remind us of who we're going to tell others about in the week, for us to receive a meal that sustains us for another week as we tell others about him. So that is our foundation for witness. Secondly, what is our authority for gospel witness? Our authority for gospel witness. Uh, how, how many of you have watched Dragon's Den? Okay, in Dragon's Den, uh, these kind of business men and women come up with an idea or, or an invention that they've come up with and they have to present it uh, and ask for investment from uh, four grumpy business men and women and uh, hope to get some investment from them. Um, and, and usually uh, you get some people with some amazing ideas uh, and uh, amazing inventions, but often they clearly haven't thought through every possible outcome. They've got blind spots uh, that the investors are, are more than happy to point out. And to, untra- to untrained eyes, the Christian faith looks like one of those poorly thought out plans, doesn't it? You're telling me you want to start a global movement? You can just imagine one of the dragons tearing it apart. Uh, You want this message to go out into the world? And yet there's no financial backing. There's no programs in place. You don't own your own buildings. Uh, The 11 stakeholders are not only uneducated, but they've got a track record of running away when things get difficult. And the CEO, he's going to disappear after 40 days. I'm out. You can imagine them saying as they rip this project to, to smithereens. You see, on a human level, the odds are stacked against this making it to the end of the week, let alone the end of the year. And yet the church becomes the fastest growing movement the world has ever seen. Why? Because they were doing everything by the authority of Jesus. The lack of infrastructure, the real estate, the university degrees and whatever else didn't matter because they were doing everything in the name of Jesus. The Lord Jesus who tells them all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. They had nothing to fear, nothing that a government official, nothing that a Roman soldier or a demon from the depths of hell could throw at them. Nothing because the the prior permission of the Lord Jesus had to be sought in order for those things to act against them. The Lord Jesus is sovereign over everything. No one could touch them. Some of my favorite verses in scripture come from the book of Acts and it shows the surprise that people had towards the the growth of the Christian movement. Listen to these words. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, They were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. They thought to themselves, these men are country bumpkins. They're not going to be a threat to us. And yet because they'd been with Jesus, they were able to perform mighty miracles and preach powerful sermons. It made the authorities quake in their sandals. Or think of later on in the book of Acts and the Christians that show up in Thessalonica. They're referred to in this way. Those who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Those who have turned the world upside down. This is not through human initiative. No, this is because Christ has given his followers 
all authority in heaven and on earth to do his will. So you might not feel impressive. You might not look impressive. I certainly don't feel any of those things. But we have been given as Christians today all authority in heaven and on earth to tell others about Jesus. And that is how the church will march on. Thirdly, uh, here is our call to gospel witness. Uh, The third thing I want us to see is this, this rallying cry from the mountaintop is not just for the disciples Uh, because we could easily fall into thinking uh, that Jesus words were only for those 11 men Uh, but there's a reason why Jesus specifies that he will be with them till the very end of the age have you met John have you met James have you met Andrew or Peter or Bartholomew no because they died a long time ago And yet these verses are still relevant. We still read them and teach them in church today because the message is still true. The command outlives the men that are standing before him. If we want to do what Jesus wants us to do, then we need to be obedient to this call. And we don't always like being obedient uh, one preacher uh, t- tells this amazing story uh, of, a, of a mother, it's a, it's a great quote, who is telling her child to come in. You can imagine the scene, a uh, mother is, is just finishing dinner and she wants the child to come in from playing in the garden for dinner time. And uh, she says, don't come up these stairs, come round the side because they're, they're icy and slippery and you might fall. And uh, the child ignores her and starts uh, walking uh, very slowly up the steps and she says I said don't come up those those steps come round the side and in this way and uh, the child keeps on going holds on a bit tighter to the banister and keeps going up the stairs and uh, she says for the last time I want you to come in this way not the way you're going through and the child says don't worry I'm being very careful and she says I don't want you to be careful I want you to be obedient. And we can sometimes, well, I can see that certainly in my own life, and maybe you've done the same. You're telling God, uh, don't worry, I'm being careful. I'm, the way I'm doing things, I'm, I, I'm doing my best to, to skirt around things so that I'm not going to offend you too much. But God doesn't want us to do things the way that we ought to do them. He wants us to do things the way he wants us to. He wants us to be obedient. He wants us to listen to him. And this goes for this great commandment that he gives all of his followers. We mustn't try and be careful. We must be obedient. We can try and worm out of these things and say that this was only a command given to his disciples. But it's for all of us because he says to the end of the age. And that doesn't mean that every single one of you here tonight will go overseas or try and reach unreached people groups or go preach the gospel um, to uh, students or plant churches in new cities or, or go to theological college or translate the Bible into a new language. It doesn't mean that, but it does mean that we're all going to be involved as Christians in the spreading of the gospel. We're all going to be involved in mission work. How? Listen to how Paul speaks to the church in Rome. I will go to Spain, he says, and visit you on the way. 
I know that when I come to you, I will come in the full measure of the blessing of Christ. I urge you, brothers and sisters, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to join me. So they're all going to go to to Spain together. That's not what it says. To join me in my struggle by praying to God for me. Pray that I may be kept safe from the believers in Judea and that the contribution I take to Jerusalem may be favorably received by the Lord's people there so that I may come to you with joy by God's will and in your company be refreshed. So the church in Rome was to support Paul not by joining him and preaching alongside him although some of them may have done that. No, the primary way that they were going to be an encouragement to his work in Spain was through prayer was uh, by being hospitable to Paul when he passed through, by encouraging him. By doing these things, they enabled Paul, someone who God had set aside for mission work. Just because we don't go overseas, that is not to say we're not involved in mission work. And God will raise up some of us for overseas mission work. Even those of us who aren't, we will be involved. And even if we're, uh, we think, oh, I can pray and I can, I can, I can be uh, hospitable, uh, that doesn't mean that we don't tell others about Jesus. We're all to tell others about Jesus. Listen to these words from 1 Peter 2. You're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. It's not just the job of the preacher to tell others about Jesus. In the staff room, on the playground, as you catch up with friends, as you chat to your neighbours, as you're coming out of your cars at the same time, wherever it is that God has called you to, we are called to declare the praises of God. The Great Commission wasn't just for the disciples. Uh, we, we read about the persecution that happened in Jerusalem at the beginning of Acts. And this is what it says. Those who were scattered preached the word wherever they went. So that means we've all got this wonderful privilege, this wonderful responsibility of being able to go out and tell others about Jesus and what he has done for us. And notice the call in verse 19 is to go. It doesn't say Receive, therefore, and make disciples. Uh, We're not to just receive people into our midst and tell them the good news. There was a time, maybe, there was a time when people walked into church services because that's what the people did. But we don't live in a church society anymore. We live in a secularized society, an unchurched society, and we must not lament and pine back for a golden age where everyone was a Christian Because that was never a thing. There was never a time when the church had a golden age in this land. There was always sinners that needed to be reached and hear the gospel. So we need to see and be be thankful that God has placed us in the time that he has put us in. And that we have opportunities, each and every one of us, to go out and tell others about him. We're called as believers to be proactive, to go out into the world and tell others the good news. Let me read you this wonderful quote which reminds us that telling others about Jesus is a a reflection of our worship for him. This is what a man called Elliot Clark says. Praise is the most natural thing in the world for us. 
And we do it all the time. We brag about our favorite sports team. We rave about our favorite restaurants. Uh, We shamelessly tell others about the deals that we find online. We can't stop talking about the latest Netflix series or our last holiday. While we demonstrate an incredible ability to proclaim the glories of endless earthly things, we somehow stutter and stammer at the opportunity to speak with others about our heavenly hope. So it's obvious our gospel silence isn't because our mouths are broken, but it's because our hearts are. Because if we worshipped God as we should, our neighbours, co-workers and friends would be the first to hear about it. The other week I had just parked up and uh, I went up to the payment meter and I realised that it had broken and that I didn't have to pay. And I was so excited, I wanted to tell everybody else as they walked up to the payment meter, you don't have to pay. You don't have to pay, guys, it's free. And yet I've got such better news than that. And yet I kept my mouth shut. Why is there not the same enthusiasm with really good news? It's fear, isn't it? So go and tell others what Jesus has done, like the Samaritan woman at the well, who couldn't keep it to herself. Jesus says, go to all the nations. So pray for the persecuted church. Uh, Pray for missionaries. Pray for Bible translators. May God raise people even up from this room to go out and support people. But we pray that people would be, uh, the people of Wales as well would come. And notice that Jesus says, baptize. It's wonderful to hear of the baptismal service that you had here last week. And it's a reminder here of the importance of baptism. We encourage all believers to be baptised. It's not what makes someone a Christian, but it's a wonderful display, isn't it, of our union with Christ. It's the first act of obedience that a Christian can do. And notice this baptism is a Trinitarian baptism. Jesus says to do so in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And that's just like the resurrection was. If you want to put someone in a twist, ask them, Which member of the Godhead raised Jesus from the dead? Uh, In Galatians 1, we read uh, this. Paul, an apostle, sent not from men, nor by a man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead. So that's clear. The Father raised Jesus from the dead. But then we go to Romans, and it says, And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead... Wait. The Spirit of him who... So it's the Spirit who raises Jesus from the dead... Okay, and then you come to John's Gospel, and uh, Jesus says this, No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and authority to take it up again. So what we see here is that the resurrection was a work of a triune God, a Trinitarian God. Jesus was raised in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. And so, I hope this is the case here, uh, when uh, Esther and Boaz emerged, uh, and Ethan emerged from the waters of baptism last week. It was in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Yes, good, <laughs> good. Um, it's a Trinitarian thing, isn't it? Uh, we we baptize uh, to reflect the death and resurrection of Jesus. And see too in, in verse twenty uh, that they are t- told to teach them to observe. All that I have commanded you. 
Not just the, the truth that we like, but all things. The wonderful things that are easy to hear, free forgiveness and being adopted into God's family and eternal life, those are all wonderful things and we like hearing those things. But Jesus says all things. So that means uh, the times when we're, to, we're told to expect hardships and persecution and that we're to, to live holy lives that are pleasing to the Lord, not to ourselves. All these things are to be taught. It's a reminder that making disciples isn't a flash in the pan. Unbelievers can be saved like that, can't they? But we need to invest in people, spend time teaching people the whole counsel of God. And we will see progress over many months and years as the Spirit works in the lives of his people. So those are the foundations, the authority and the call to gospel witness. And finally, our reassurance in gospel witness. It's wonderful to know that we don't go into this on our own. Look at verse 20. Jesus says, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. A preacher called H.B. Charles uh, says, Jesus' reassurance is personal and perpetual. Personal and perpetual. Uh, God is, is with us and we know him personally at all times. And that theme of God being with us is found throughout uh, Matthew's gospel. If you've got a stick of rock and you see at the beginning and the middle and the end, you see the same word running through. Then uh, the, the stick of rock of Matthew's gospel is God with us. I'm with you. In Matthew 1.23, um, the, the angel says to Mary, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And then about halfway through the gospel uh, of Matthew, we read of Jesus speaking about disagreements in church and discipline in church. And he says, For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. And here is uh, the last part of this gospel. Jesus says, I am with you to the end of the age. In our evangelism, he is with us. What an encouragement that is. Jesus is with us when we tell others about him. We don't go alone. Think of what Jesus said to his disciples at the beginning of his ministry. When they bring you before the synagogues and before the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. So as you go into this this week and you might be worried, I, I should tell people about Jesus. You're not going to be the one speaking. When the Spirit is working within you, He will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. As we declare the praises of the one who called us out of darkness and into light, we remember that the Father is working through us. Jesus is with us. The Spirit is working in us and through us. That is how the church was built. And that is how the church will continue to build until Christ comes in glory.